Before we begin, please refer to the disclaimers in the link on the podcast notes and note that none of the information provided during this update constitutes investment advice or a recommendation, solicitation, or offer by Galaxy Digital or its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital, and we have a very exciting episode today. Our first external guest on this podcast, Galaxy Brains, um, my friend Nick Carter from Castle Island Ventures. Nick, how are you? Welcome. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you, Alex. I'm glad, excited you have a podcast now. I know. It's That's fun. great. I've just been listening to yours for, all, for three and a half years now. Inshallah, you shall replace <laughs> On the Brink as the leading crypto podcast. You hear that, Matt? Nick's calling for it right now. Matt Walsh, make it, uh, you got to step aside. <laughs> Give up the throne. <laughs> um, I also have Christine Kim, as always, from Galaxy Digital Research. Hey, Christine. Hello, hello. And we have our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading, as always, as well. What's up, Bim? Thanks for having me. So we're not going to do uh, talk about a ton of news specifically. We're really going to talk with Nick and, and have a general conversation this episode about uh, Bitcoin and crypto and markets. But um, before we dive deep into that, Bimnet, we just had a, you know, a rip roaring day. ETH was up huge yesterday, but Bitcoin followed strongly today. Um, it feels good being up 20% over a two, three day period. You know, if you round tripped your, if you bought Bitcoin at 69,000, then you're still down pretty bad today. But if you, <laughs> but we're up a lot. I mean, what's happening? What are you seeing from your seat? Uh, looking at markets. Um, yeah, no, it kind of seemed like you, you had the perfect culmination of like all the bad news priced into to markets. And it sort of left us in a position where the path of least resistance was higher. And you had this sort of liquidity situation where, you know, there's a lot of shorts, a lot of illiquidity and you just had sort of gappy price action. So, you know, taking a step back, we had inflation last week um, that you know, printed a record nine one. People got super pessimistic. You know, they sold stocks, sold crypto, and we've been moving, you know, higher ever since. Um, you know, on the equity side, earnings expectations are about as bearish as, as you can possibly get. Right. Most of the street side analysts that I talk to um, expect that inline um, results from, from most of the large cap tech companies would would actually be bullish, right. right? And you've already, you're basically at trend lows. Um, and then in terms of like recession expectations, you know, they're still at the highs, right? Like twos, tens is inverted at, at neg 20. You know, you're, you're, you're pricing in, you know, looking at, depending on what model you look at, lots of people are forecasting anywhere from like a 60 to 80% probability of a recession within the next year. Um, so all in all, it seemed like everybody got, got peak bearishness. And then you had sort of, you know, some, sort of constructive news come out and, and, and the market just sort of started to, to rip higher. Right. Um, and I think, you know, you're in a position where ETH and BTC can can actually extend even even more just because, you know, we haven't spent that much time here um, in terms of, you know, Bitcoin's price action, right? You basically went from 29,000 to, you know, 20,000 without spending much time in between. And so I think that there's pretty good case to be made for Bitcoin going back to, 28,000 for ETH to go back to, to 2K or at least break through yeah. um, resistance. Um, and I think, you know, uh, Christine, uh, you know, all credit to, to ETH folks out there. Yeah, you know, I definitely what was do that think constructive news? The, well, one, uh, it, it was, you know, I think Celsius was done selling, right? That was pretty constructive. Um, and so people weren't afraid of, of the steeth 
ETH peg, you know, giving way. Um, and you also had that dev call. You know, I think people started to, you know, at least on crypto Twitter, you know, hype that up a little bit. I mean, and you some were going concreteness in, around the merge yep. being activated around specific dates. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Um, and then stocks were trading incredibly well at, at that time, too. And so when you have, you know, good news and you have illiquidity and you got a lot of levered shorts in the market. Or sellers are kind of gone, it looks like, yep. at the moment. or. And now you have forced buying. You went from insane forced selling, huge deleveraging on the long side to the exact opposite. And so, you know, I think um, there's probably still more forced buying left. I think if you talk to, you know, at least my contacts amongst the, the crypto native community, I think people are still underweight or, you know, a little on the short side and same thing in equities as well. Yeah. And so the pain trade in this market for the summer is really higher. Um, and I think, you know, if you just taking a step back, Bitcoin had this huge run to 69K, then it came down to, to 18K. And if, if you, in your mind, like, that is sort of the, the range that Bitcoin's going to be in at 20K or 24K, you know, it seems pretty asymmetric. It shouldn't be a little higher, right? Somewhere it, in the middle, closer to the middle of that range. I exactly. Mean, and this then is the, our fundamental valuation analysis, by the way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. And then the, the last thing I, I sort of want to leave you guys with, which is, you know, the, the biggest sort of most high level analysis that we can get to is, is, you know, central bank policy has basically driven price action in, in all markets, right. right? And uncertainty around that, that, you know, central bank response function has, has driven a lot of price action. And I think what you've seen over the past week or two is that uncertainty come down meaningfully. People are now firmly of the view that inflation has peaked. You've seen a lot of data rollover, break-evens rollover, oil rollover, a bunch of other commodity prices rollover. And you've seen things like the VIX, which is a, a gauge on you know future volatility of the S&P in terms of expectations, move a lot lower. You've had uh, U.S. fixed income volatility move a lot lower. So there's a lot more certainty in the market. And when there's a lot more certainty in the market, I think the drift in the market is just naturally higher just right. because of how much capital there is and how much unallocated capital there is. Love that. Great overview. Um, I don't know. Anybody have stuff they want to say on this or uh, questions? I, I mean, I, that, this, that, that's really easy for me to comprehend. It does feel like the forced selling is, is mostly over. Certainly the, you know, I don't know, but like, I don't think there's another like three AC or, or Celsius out there shoot a drop. It doesn't feel like there is. And we've got some you know, comfort. You're going to have where we some were. others like yeah. more drawn out selling, you know, bankruptcy totally. proceedings for, for 3AC and a couple other entities. But that's going to be methodical and, and slow. And longer term. And right? longer this term. Takes, I don't think they'll take as long as Mount Gox because that's partly a peculiarities of the Japanese bankruptcy system. Um, but still, I mean, we know it's not soon. Right? But generally, so Bim, you think we've hit bottom, that this is it's up from here. Um. You know, you I, with reasonable <laughs> confidence, uh, I, I do think that, you know, we've sort of bottomed for the year. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I, and I would trade that accordingly. Um, I, I think there's lots of creative ways to, to express this view and optionality uh, where you're not risking too much uh, on the downside um, and right. where you have a lot of convexity to the upside. Yeah, it's hard to know. And there's a bunch of weird stuff that can still happen. I'm always talking about, you know, there's Absolutely. there's war, there's pandemics, there's famines. These are actually not jokes. They're happening. Absolutely. And but that here's, can, here's but, the but thing. yeah, but we've priced a lot of this in um, at the moment. It feels like it was scarier two, three months ago. Russia, Ukraine was scarier for yep. markets. Don't get me wrong. It's a serious and scary thing that's happening there still. But from a market standpoint, 
um, we've digested this. Absolutely. The one thing I would sort of leave you all with in terms of risks to consider is that, you know, to our point last week, people are insanely bad at predicting inflation, right? <laughs> the major risk to, to the market right now and to central banks and, and whatnot is is really upside surprises in inflation. It just keeps going higher. Keeps going. Everyone Some sort of energy, another energy crisis, yeah. wars, etc. Um, and I, you know, I really do think that you know people should be focused on inflation data at least for the, the next three months or or the balance of, of the year. Yeah. Um, but that is a, a a very you know acute risk to the market. And the other risk that goes hand in hand with that is you know the Fed keeps sort of financial conditions incredibly tight for longer than yeah. wh wh what the market expects. Um, so those are the risks. But in my head, you know, it seems like Bitcoin's found a floor at, you know, 18 to 20 K. Um, and, you know, the, the responses to some of these edge scenarios is actually more monetary easing, loosening of financial conditions sometimes. For financial assets or risk assets. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, you know, I am uh, bullish here. Um, and that is a refreshing <laughs> thing go. for me to say. Remember several weeks ago, I asked for one positive thing about the market and BIMnet was literally speechless, had nothing to say. <laughs> That's on a podcast uh, that we previously did. I forget what number, but it's called Bear Market Update on our feed if you're listening. You and I back. will have to say the market did go a lot lower <laughs> from no, that no, podcast. We <laughs> uh, you know. um, awesome. Thanks for the overview. We're all going to just chill. I mean, we're sitting in a room together. It's great to have Nick here. It's also great for all four of us to be in New York. We don't usually do this live, um, all of us live, but it's great to have everyone um, welcome, Nick. How's it going? Uh, you just got back from vacation. Um, I was joking that uh, I don't know what superlatives I should I can say about you that will um, the Bitcoiners will take umbrage with. But is it true <laughs> that you're both vaccinated and vegan now? <laughs> and I handed in my guns. You no know. way. Oh yeah, oh, just uh, you know buybacks. <laughs> um, yeah, I got four shots in in one week. You know, I had to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> the boosties is that what you call them? Oh, um, yeah. Sorry, we're just joking for our listeners because Nick, um, uh, the, the Bitcoin maximalist took umbrage with Nick because of an investment you made um, out of Castle Island Ventures, your venture fund um, with, with now that used to be just you and Matt Walsh, but now you have several partners there. Um, that wasn't a Bitcoin investment. I think they didn't realize that you've been investing in the crypto and blockchain ecosystem for years. Also a founder of Coinmetrics, which is a multi-coin data platform. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was that investment specifically. I think um, there's like all these little these power struggles happening in uh, sort of Bitcoin uh, influencer land, I would say. Not that I set out to be one or anything. And uh, it was a little opportunistic, which is like, okay, here's a non-Bitcoin thing that Nick did. Let's, uh, yeah. let's use it as a wedge issue. So Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible to really love Bitcoin, but also think other things are interesting. Yeah, I is think that, that that's that the default. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm just, uh, I try and be data-driven, right? Try and be data-driven. So let's look at the data. Let's see what's happening. That was the whole point of Coinmetrics, right? Back in 2017 when uh, that began. Uh, where is the economic activity happening? You know, think of a blockchain like a little country, like a small nation. Uh, let's just look at the macroeconomic statistics, right? That was the whole point. And uh, if you look at that data today, it's a fact that there's plenty of activity elsewhere on right. other blockchains, meaningful activity. It's not just illusory. It's not fake. It's not all scams, you know. Uh, where are all the stable coins? Stable coins, you can't really deny that that's a useful use of blockchains, right? right. Where are the stable coins? They're not on Bitcoin. I'll tell you that. Yeah, I looked at the Omni BTC, the uh, sorry, the Omni Tether, the tethers that are issued on Bitcoin's Omni layer, which uses like Opera Turn to to you know put 
arbitrary data that to move that and like there is still a tiny amount but it's like unchanged for like years where is that sitting like who's got i want to know if you're on this if you're listening to this podcast who is holding bitcoin on the omni layer still there's like still like you can pull this yeah, up on coin metrics i recommend there's it. a billion dollars it's just sitting so there somewhere it hasn't moved omni. and it doesn't increase or decrease yeah <laughs> i think there was actually a burn recently but was yeah there? it's I, it's it's split now i think it's neck and neck between tether and and or tron and eth in terms of where the tethers are like um I, we've talked about this before and i have a theory on it but why is there a tron tether on tron what's the deal with that well, I don't think, uh, you know, your Tether users in sort of Nigeria or the Philippines care much about the, you know, um, qualities of, you know, the node operation, how hard it is to run a node for Tron or ETH or whatever. Um, you know, these people just want to use dollars and uh, they want low fees. And they want a uh, mobile wallet. Yeah, they want to hold dollars in their, yeah, on their smartphone um, and transact with them and run their export business or whatever it is. And so they don't really care about... Uh, the blockchain, and they don't care about Tether's uh, attestations either, for that matter. You know, they don't care about the amount of commercial paper that they hold. Right. I saw Tether's trading at $1 flat. So that's the first time and now since May, right? It was been trading slightly below the peg uh, since then, which is kind of an interesting development, I guess. I mean, you know, we, we joke, you know, stable coins are really interesting for a lot of reasons. But, you know, if you think about number go up as the sort of uh, one of the many mantras, primarily of the Bitcoiners, right? Um, then stable coins are number stay flat technology. Right? <laughs> it's like that they should be right. Like, um, so just on Bitcoin, like, you know, and we, we can talk a lot about it. Of course, you've written a ton about Bitcoin. I really recommend our, our listeners read some of Nick's writing. I think you got it all posted at nickcarter.info. Um that's right. Solid website, by the way. <laughs> Thank I enjoy you. it. I got to make mine better. Thank you. Um, so I don't want to go too deep. Nick's commented a ton um, in the public domain on Bitcoin mining and stuff. We're going to ask some of these questions. But, you know, what's if it's not hyper Bitcoinization, Bitcoin obsoletes all money. It could be. That's one thesis for how Bitcoin goes in the end state. Um, another is digital gold, that it's a, a hard money investable asset. Um, some people think Bitcoin will, will be for payments. Um, I think all of these are very nascent. If you had to pick like sort of a, a like your, in your view today, the likeliest end game for Bitcoin, whenever it reaches its apex of adoption and popularity, what do you think that looks like? Yeah. I mean, uh, you can track, uh, gold's, um, uh, prevalence relative to sort of global GDP and it waxes and wanes over time. Uh, I think if you wanted to look for a ceiling on Bitcoin's value, you would um, basically project it out that way. You would, you would look at, uh, you know, historical peaks in terms of golds, uh, you know, economic weight relative to, uh, you know, economic output. And, um, and you would assume that Bitcoin would be the hard money that served that purpose. Um, I think it would look very different from the sort of setup we have today. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's sort of like your optimistic case. You think central banks one day, or, or I, should, I guess I shouldn't say central banks even, maybe central banks, maybe nations in general have to move back at some point to a, a pegged, uh, a dollar pegged to a hard asset, a, a currency pegged to a hard asset. Of course, it's fluctuated many times, right? The history of money is replete with instances of debasement and rebasement. Mm -hmm. Do you think, mm -hmm. or is it the end of history 
um, where we never have to go back to a hard a national currencies based on hard money. Right. I mean, so what did we do for most of history? We had basically gold standards, and then we would fight wars. We would leave the gold standard, then we would get back on the gold standard after over and the over war, again. Right? Rome did yeah. it itself back like four forth. separate times yeah. or something. So then you'd have your inflation. Then you'd have offsetting deflation, oftentimes. And then, so we did that, and then we, you know, we, we broke the cycle in uh, in 1970 or 1913, even right. Yep. You know, basically after World War One, we tried to get back on the gold standard. We failed with the Great Depression as a consequence, um, and then from there we were basically off it. Uh, from 1971 onwards, we've really been off it. That's been a real aberration. Um, now what's happening, we're having a bit of a rebasement, but it took commodities, right? So like, look at what different currencies are doing in the world right now. Euro is getting crushed. JPY is getting crushed. Rubles doing exceedingly well, right? Uh, dollars doing very well as well, right? So what, what did those two nations have in common? The US, USA and Russia, they're commodity rich, energy rich nations, right? Russia is explicitly weaponizing their energy, right? Literally. Uh, Europe is short energy. Japan is short energy. So the currency performance is a function of the world realizing, oh, like your access to actual real physical commodities and resources really matters. And we're going to express that in the currency markets. That's what Zoltan Pozar keeps talking about with Bretton Woods 3, is repricing all of these currencies with respect, with respect to the actual physical resources these countries have. So that's sort of like our intermediate stage. Then the question is, do we go to a, like a neutral settlement medium or a neutral, you know, reserve asset? That would be kind of the next stage. Maybe that's when Bitcoin starts to be important. I don't know. Cold and gold couldn't really be that. It had been that where, you, you, you know, all the gold's several blocks south of us in the New York Fed. Um, and you just like when you want to settle in gold, like some some man opens up a cage and like like or person opens up a cage and carts a brick of gold from like you know nigeria's vault to like us's vault does it right? even move i don't even know if it even <laughs> i think moves. it does i think does, i'm not sure no, no, I, I don't think it physically it doesn't settled. okay um, uh, and, and just you know bitcoin a, can settle can so so you think is it possible that in that uh like neutral global i mean i think we probably agree that bitcoin one of its main value propositions it's certainly at the core of my thesis is that it is the most neutral decentralized hardened protocol right and there's something like a global decentralized neutral trade settlement medium bitcoin sounds like a decent option for that it's something you want to include in your bancor 2.0 right yeah. and that's not bancor the DeFi protocol that's you know the yeah. keynes's bancor yeah yeah unfortunately you know one of the things that i don't think people realize is you know the the, the folks in power like you know the guys at the new york fed determining monetary policy etc you know, they're a bunch of like old PhD folks and they're not as sort of, you know, up the curve on, on, on Bitcoin and, and cryptos as one might like. And so, you know, I think it's going to take like literally another generation before you see like, you know, a, a Bank of Japan or, yeah. you know, a, a Bank of England or RBNZ or, or someone like that actually, you know, having Bitcoin in their sort of balance sheet. Yeah. It's going to take time. I think it's more likely. This is kind of Luke Groman's view. Mm -hmm. He advocates for a portfolio of gold and Bitcoin because his view is that gold is more likely to be re-monetized than it is to monetize Bitcoin from scratch because precisely because of this reason, because governments own gold yeah. already. So they why not start with what you have and try and reestablish that? Interesting. Um, and just as a side note, you know, one of the 
charts I look at a lot is uh, the the Bitcoin gold ratio. Um, and, you know, it was basically bounced perfectly off support recently, like <laughs> 11 or 10. Um, and so, you know, I think that's a relationship that, that you're supposed to watch closely. And I, I definitely recommend that people look at it graphically. All right. Well, we have a range of topics that we'd love to talk. Christine, can you, uh, what we got on this list? What should we talk about next? One of them, about? Yeah. One of them is about stable coins and where we see st the role of stable coins in this future. Do we see like one, um, stable coin like USDC kind of winning out or do we see um, a bunch of different government states issuing their own CBDCs um, in that future where Bitcoin might take a bigger role in, in the monetary regime? Um, where do we see stable coins fitting into the picture, Nick? Yeah, I mean, t to me, stable coins are actually the more important thing to watch in terms of the sort of next five years here um, of, uh, of, you know, sovereign currency development. Um, you know, I've been public about the fact that I expect to see crypto dollarization uh, and actually for that to be really disruptive and, and for that to be more of a trend in the near term than like Bitcoinization or hyper Bitcoinization. Right. So we've seen dollarization. We've seen it happen spontaneously with cases like Ecuador in the early 2000s. We've seen it happen officially, which is actually the more common way. Right. The central bank uh, will institute dollarization to, you know, prevent an inflationary collapse. Um, now we're going to start to see crypto dollarization where it's basically happening via stable coins. Um, I hope that there will be many competing stable coins. I think they'll mostly refer to the dollar because why would you have it refer to anything else? Um, and really the dollar has the liquidity and the treasury market to support it. Um, and if you look at the data, like I looked, I looked this up recently. I think it's 99% of all stable coins reference the dollar. Yeah. Like stable coin supply, right? It's like, yeah. Tether has a Euro Tether, but like no one uses it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the next most popular one is actually gold. Yeah. And then I think so maybe Paxos has a gold stable coin. Yeah. Which Tether I, has I gold. think that actually makes sense. I mean, you know, it's, it, cool. it's nice because it's a commodity. So it doesn't, so it's not a security. Um, but if you are a person, an institution, whomever you are, and you like blockchains, your assets on blockchains for whatever reason, whether you're a person, you have a mobile wallet, if you're, I don't know, business that has crypto custody maybe you want more stuff. I mean, maybe that's how tokenized commodities, maybe that's how eventually we get to tokenize equities one day where just because you like the infrastructure better. I don't yeah. know. I know. I, I think actually the, the gold stablecoin models I've seen have been pretty thoughtful in terms of giving you a specific claim on gold um, and, uh, you know, making that a really tight linkage. Yeah. yeah I, I see crypto dollarization as the next trend here. I think we are going to have a wave of sovereign defaults uh, when DXY gets strong, uh, there's a lot of defaults out there in the world, right? That's, you know, so like that's sort of what happens. If you look at the pre, if you look at the Asian financial crisis, you look at the Eastern European financial, you look at, you know, just these various crises. If you go back a few decades, the commonality is the dollar is strong. And then always it's like, you get things like the Plaza Accord where you're begging to like devalue the dollar to save everyone. Right. Uh, and so the dollar is like really the apex predator here. It doesn't seem great as dollar holders, right? 9% mm -hmm. devaluation last year, right? But, um, you know, relative to everything else, it's crushing it. So um, I, that's kind of what I expect to see here. And for the first time, we have this financial infrastructure which can distribute dollars to pretty much everyone globally and uh, in such a way that they can hold it outside of the bank system. And that's been the problem with dollarizations in the past, is that you've always had to do it through the banks. 
And so that's always given the local government discretion over how the process happened, right? That's given them the power to sort of inhibit it, right? Now it's much more uncontrolled, right? It's much more spontaneous, much more bottom-up. And so that's what I'd expect to see. And I think you'll see more like Lebanon, more like Turkey, where in conjunction with an inflationary event, a local devaluation, you're going to see all these other headlines about like crypto exchanges booming, government bans, crypto exchanges, P2P adoption of stable coins happening. And that's very, very hard to inhibit from the state level. So I think that's what we're going to see. That's going to be the tremendously disruptive trend in the next couple of years. Is there like a stablecoin infrastructure you see kind of winning out, like be it algorithmic or over collateralized or something like the Circle, um, Paxos? Question, like what is that model? What do you think is the dominant model? Fiat backed, I think, is simplest and most credible. Yeah, yeah just the fiat backed. Because USDC, you know, they don't really care if their coins are used in Venezuela. I mean, uh, I actually asked Jeremy Allaire this and he was fine with it, right? I mean, so like, and, and you know, those like around regular, you know, person using a stablecoin on a retail basis, they're not redeeming with circle or center directly, uh, but it still works. So um, on this topic real quick is um, we expect today or tomorrow, today, Wednesday, what, July 20th, um, is that the date, July 20th, um, or tomorrow in the house, we expect a major stablecoin bill to be unveiled. Really? Um, which will codify fiat-backed stablecoins, I think, as the sort of legal path forward in the U.S. Now, I don't know if that'll be, um, you know, what the status of the bill exactly be, but I'm told it is likely to be bipartisan um, in the House um, from some leadership folks. So this could be, to your point, I think that's, this is apropos, it is current, it is happening. Um, and your point is super interesting that this extends the reach of the dollar. This is good for America, I think, if done correctly. Um, but but I do think that there is a place for like non USD you know stables, um, particularly you know once the the dollar sort of starts to weaken in any way, you know where I see stablecoins headed is very similar to, to Nick's. But you know I see you know much greater transparency, much more improved liquidity in terms of redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, facilities, but also, and most importantly, um, a greater rate of like interest rate pass through, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I do, I think that there, all these stable coin companies now, you know, they're collecting, you know, sort of fat spreads where, you know, they get to take your dollars at zero or, you know, call it 50 basis points for term or something like that. And they get to put it in three month T-bills at 3% and collect mm-hmm. the 270 NIM. Right. I think the future is, you know, stable coins that pay you interest, you know, as, you know, just to give you guys context. I mean, basically every developed central bank on the planet outside of like Japan is raising interest rates to positive right, right. now. Um, and so I think once you get people getting interest on their their dollars just by holding the dollars, not even in a savings account, but my stable is actually earning me yield right, right not now. Even lending I, it. You're not lending it. You're lending it to the U.S. government in, you know, treasury securities. Right. But once you get, you know, the interest rates to be positive, you know, that's a powerful motivator. And like if you're paying European folks in, in euro interest rates, et cetera. So yeah. you'll drive adoption that way. And then eventually, I think, you know, a lot of like money, um, like foreign exchange is going on chain. Like curve mm-hmm. is going to be the future of, of like currency exchanging uh, exchanges, right? You're going to be trading the, the Aussie euro pair on curve, right? For cheaper than where you do your, you know, airport uh, currency conversion. Or, and if you get it to the point of like level. institutional liquidity where you right. have mm-hmm. hundreds of billions being LP'd, 
right? Like that will be the future of, of you know, sort of currency so exchange. How do we stuff. see like the comeback of crypto yields? Because we've been talking on this podcast, especially how like the yields that you can find in the traditional financial markets is so much better right now than what we have in crypto. If we see, if we, that if that is something that we see in the future, what? how do we think that like the downfall of what we're seeing right now in, in the crypto markets of all these crazy yields like how does it come back and how does it come back stronger and more resilient than before you know it just has to be the yield has to be sustainable uh, you know it can't be you know a, a luna where it's just you're printing it it's the yield has to come from sustainable sources and sources that people can rely on and people you know know that they're regulated entities right like this bill being passed you know, probably forces a lot of stablecoin issuers Transparency to like hold more certain. assets than necessary even like, and that will eat into their margins and stuff, but it'll give people like more like assuredness that, you know, their assets are safe. So transparency, like efficiency of, of movement. And also you do need like the level of interest rates to be non-zero or non-negative um, as well. No, that, that's a huge Hopefully part we don't go all the way back to zero and negative rates. I mean, that just is a crazy, although the, if you look <sighs> at that, the history of the rates recently, meaning yeah. like the last 30 years, it's like lower highs over and over again. Yeah. Every I time mean, they raise again, they go 40 year bull market yeah. fixing. Well, it's arguably but over, but speaking about credit, um, Nick, you have an article that just came out um, about credit in crypto, right? Um, well, what, what, I don't know where it is. It's lost in the coin desk, uh, kind of like CRM ether. somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's, it's, it's out. Co it's coming soon. At least I think by the time this podcast this is live, air. it will have been out. So this <laughs> airs on Friday. So, yeah. um, what, what did you, uh, what, what was your view on it? I mean, were you saying that it's cyclical? Like, or everyone's yeah. saying like the age of, uh, like depositor crypto is over. Do you think that's true? Yeah. Um, so funny. I mean, uh, it was funny when I was writing that article, I, um, I went on Twitter. I know I haven't been posting a lot of tweets lately, but yeah. um, I saw a spaces which was called Celsius is dead. Long live Bitcoin. And I was like, what? These things aren't in opposition. Like Bitcoin is just a substrate and it's something that will be used in these credit relationships as it has been. And, and that's this is critical. what Hal Finney talked about yeah. with Bitcoin banks. So, so it's like, guys, this, and I, I've written about this too, a number of times. Like I viewed the creation of, um, credit on top of Bitcoin, Bitcoin being this like high powered form of collateral, which so is used to say pristine collateral, pristine collateral. It's a very suitable kind. In fact, it's much better than anything that came before for collateral purposes. That is actually the key really for Bitcoin. You know, that's always been my view. I viewed it as this asset that, or, you know, banking sector would be built up around. Mm -hmm. Now it just so happens that the V1 instantiation of crypto credit was pretty bad, you know, like uh, wasn't great. Um, you know, like so the, a lot of it was based on like these fake yields that weren't yields, right? They were actually just like subsidized um, and subsidized. Yeah. or it's like a function of token issuance. It wasn't really sustainable. Right. Uh, there was just literal fraud in some of the yields, right? We're going to learn more about that in the coming months. Uh, but yeah, there's a bunch of fraud. Um, and, uh, there was just, you know, misallocation and just you know, poor underwriting decisions and so on, whatever. That doesn't mean that credit is going to vanish. You know, a lot of Bitcoiners, and I don't want to pick on them specifically, but they tend to have like really explicit views on this. A lot of Bitcoiners have this Rothbardian view that like um, nothing but full reserve banking is legitimate, right? And that uh, fractional reserve banking is, is somehow fraudulent, which is just like totally incompatible with like financial history, right? If you look at the most unencumbered, laissez-faire, free banking 
uh, environments throughout history, right, where there's no regulation whatsoever, so the market just equilibrates somewhere, you don't end up with full reserve banking. That's not a thing that that's not a product that people want, basically. Uh, yeah, like, okay, some people want custody. But really what people want is, uh, you know, genuine banking with maturity transformation, with underwriting, with credit creation, right? And that is, quote unquote, fractional reserve. So, yeah, we're going to get the reemergence of credit, uh, but it's going to have better characteristics this time. That's my prediction, right? Mm-hmm. So lenders are going to embrace proof of reserve. They're going to embrace explicit liquidity or capital ratios. And it just so happens we're using cryptographic assets. So you can literally prove your liquidity ratio. Yep. Regulators should love that, right? They don't understand it yet, but they'll love it when yep. they find out about it. Let's talk a little <laughs> bit about proof of reserve because you really were quite instrumental in pushing forward. I don't know if you created the concept, but you were early on advocating for it. And I know you've done a lot of work on proof of reserve. Think on if you go to that website I mentioned before, NickCarter.info, you've got stuff on proof of reserve there for people to know what we're talking about. First of all, what is that? And um, are, we are making progress, aren't we? I know yeah, there's some cracking that I think does proof of reserves. Yeah, I have a wall of fame on my website for uh, those the, who are doing the it. Institutions. So go check it. that out. You'll see. And, uh, we don't have to list them all, but it's growing. Yeah, it's growing. Um, yeah. So basically, the idea, initial idea was as a kind of depository institution, an exchange or custodian, custodian yeah. really was for custodians, you could um, prove that basically you could add up all your liabilities and all your assets and you could prove that they match perfectly. Right. And uh, with, you know, for instance, Bitcoin, uh, you know, it's very easy to prove ownership of Bitcoin. And then as an exchange, you could do like a Merkleized thing and basically add up all your user accounts and prove that they're equivalent to the amount of Bitcoin held. Right. That's sort of the simplest form. That's the asset side. Yeah. And so like pretty straightforward, actually. Right. Um, Kraken did one in 2014, 15, waited seven years to bring it back. They did finally Good Good for them. them. Uh, BitMEX did one recently, I think last year. Um, there was a wave after Mt. Gox, and then more recently there's been a newer wave. And now we're seeing more exotic ones where like stable coins are doing something similar, which is not exactly proof of reserve in my opinion. Right. But, you know, they're using this one, for the most part, they use this one auditor called Armanito. Shout out to them. They will uh, pull through real time data from the bank and then compare that to the uh, liabilities which are on the blockchain right. and compare those. So that's not really cryptographic proof of reserve, but it's still like innovation in accounting, right. right? Which is good, in my opinion. And then we even have some of the lenders are now doing proofs of reserve. Ledin is doing it. Nexo uh, claims to be doing it. We'll see how, uh, you know, the quality of those assurances. But the point is, like, these institutions are now competing on different ways to prove how solvent they are and transparent, which is great. That only helps consumers and, and users. And you're going to see so much more demand for this. Um, and so that's sort of one of the features of like credit 2.0. The other one I would look at would be transparency in terms of actual counterparties, right? Because if you look at the CFI lenders, they were very untransparent, right? Nobody knew who was lending to whom. Um, it turns out they're all lending three arrows and none of them told each other about that. Maybe if they'd communicated... We would like, you know, if people had been like, hey, wait, you guys learning how much of these guys? Whoa, holy crap. You know, so then we would have sort of maybe abated the crisis. What I would look to would be uh, hybrid CFI DeFi models of lending. Right. And we're actually seeing some of those. Right. So, um, you know, there's a few of these where uh, you are using sort of DeFi protocols, but then there's actual underwriting. And, you know, there's 
uh, intermediaries that are performing like the credit assessments and assessments. Right. Uh, so yeah, it's not fully like the maples of the world. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not fully DeFi. It's not fully DeFi the way the Aave or Compound is. Right. But what's interesting here is that the loans and the interest payments, et cetera, et cetera, are happening on chain. So you can tell who's on the end of these Very things. Very transparent. So you can use Nansen to figure out who it is, or uh, in, in practice, these protocols just disclose who the counterparties are. That's a model of transparency that's far better than the C5. Right, lending. using the blockchain as the plumbing to actually yeah. operate the loan. But and, and so it's in this case, it's a feature that the blockchain is transparent, right? It's an enormous feature. And so that, I think, is a much better system. And you look, these can still fail. Like, you know, these maples and these trufies and the clear pools. Like, yeah, there were defaults in those portfolios. But uh, it's fully transparent. Uh, and so, you know, I like that hybrid model a lot better. I think that those are going to be the winners as we move away from the fully black box CFI lenders or rather the CFI lenders as they evolve from this crisis, because they're going to continue to exist for sure. They're going to be pushed to be far more transparent. So I'm actually pretty optimistic about this, the credit sector overall. Speaking of those kinds of blockchain innovations that you see, Nick, I know that you've done a lot of uh, research and in looking into decentralized identities on the blockchain. Curious to know if um, any of those technologies that you were talking about really help support like the transparency around wallet identification and uh, building like a decentralized identity system on top of the blockchain. Does it go against like everything that we believe in in terms of like privacy and pseudonymity, um, what other technologies are being built specifically for decentralized identity. Um, I feel like that's another emerging area of innovation that we might see more of and curious to know. Yeah, that well, that's kind of the holy grail of, of Web3, I would say, right, is uh, being able to use your on-chain uh, credentials to log into things. And right now, you know, it's a pretty good experience logging into stuff with your MetaMask or whatever. That clearly can't be the you know, final destination because, um, you don't really want to tie your, uh, you know, your, yourself and your credentials to your wallet as well. Literally you, to your bank account. Yeah. You don't want to have that all in one place. It's like, all right, if I'm going to have my ENS and I'm going to log into like a web three social network, I also have to disclose like my, my portfolio. <laughs> right. That's crazy. Like, uh, that'd be like, um, all right, log into, you know, Google and, uh, Anyone that you, uh, you know, send an email to, you're also telling them how much. Like my Fidelity account. Like log in with Fidelity. <laughs> yeah. Like, right? Exactly. want to yeah. buy this thing on like a direct-to-consumer brand website, but like here's all the mutual funds I own. Right. right? That can't happen. Right. So yeah. we clearly need to progress from that. Um, th so there's like a lot of smart people working on it. And I will confess, I, I'm not fully up to date on like the state of affairs of DIDs and uh, what is it? Soulbound tokens. Yeah, soulbound tokens, verifiable yeah. credentials. Um, you know the guys at Square. Um, That's right. With Dan, the Dan TBD. And the, yeah, TBD the, and TBD, which is <laughs> that's an actual thing. Um, yeah, they, I, they like to joke. At I don't Square know with what their the name. Names. I don't understand the name of the TBD, and then it's a lot of numbers. I don't either, but um, <laughs> they like to make jokes with their names, like Web Five and stuff. And yeah. I, I respect that. Um, but I I do fundamentally like the idea because look at the way we use credentials today. So there's like the web two way where it's just like basically Apple and Google and whoever just control everything and you're totally accountable to them and you're totally disempowered, right? They have all the power, you have no power. And then, you know, um, that's obviously not going to be sustainable because uh, basically, um, you know, I think it becomes a geopolitical issue, right? We can't just like literally delegate control of the internet to like four companies or whatever. 
Um, the other thing is passwords are basically increasingly cumbersome. That's sort of impossible. So we either outsource it to one of these companies or we, you know, if you're more technical, then you have your password manager. And so that just collapses back to storing your credentials with cryptography that you yourself custody. That sounds a lot like maintaining your wallet and then log in with your wallet, right? So I kind of think that this is a natural progression where we're going to move back towards self-custody of our own credentials, and then we're going to be able to log into things and retain much more discretion and power. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think the current model that we have where you're just literally logging in with your, you know, uh, your, your private key or whatever, uh, that can't work. So we're going to have to find some way to segregate your uh, financial self from your sort of uh, authenticated self. I feel like there's so many outstanding questions with the decentralized identity projects um, and a lot of those you've, you've already raised. Um, but there's still also a lot of outstanding questions about like what even is Web3 and how much of Web3 is uh, like a social arena, how much of it is like a gaming arena, how much of it is a VR arena. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts around what the future of Web3 will look like? So Web3, I think, is like a made up. I mean, all terms are made up, right? But Web3 is especially made up. So <laughs> like, basically, I think it was like a bait and switch to rebrand crypto for the mainstream, right? People don't like crypto. And so then we went to Web3. What is Web3? Does Web3 stand for just, um, you know, like decentralized identity kind of stuff? Is it only the non-monetary uses of crypto? Is it the monetary? Does it encompass those as well? Is it just a term we use to make the New Yorker less worried about crypto? Is that what it's for? Probably. I mean, that sounds the most accurate. They seem to really like it. Um, it's a great way to raise a VC fund. Yeah, exactly. So um, as a Web3 VC, I'm not sure what Web3 is. I don't think anyone's ever done a great job of defining it, to be clear. Um, and I also think it contains some like really weird uh, components. So like here, all right, here's the main issue I have with Web3 discourse. Oftentimes you'll see uh, specifically VCs that invest in Web3. They'll say stuff like, yeah, with Web3, you know, like we can like retake, you know, power over like internet platforms and then we can give users ownership, literal ownership in the platforms, right? And uh, that actually has like weirdly Marxist undertones in my opinion, right? And so, you know, basically you have really big venture firms that uh, were the winners in Web2 and they successfully invested in Web2 and then they have a lot of power. They're basically saying, we're going to liberate you from these Web2 platforms. And uh, through you know, tokens, typically, we're going to give you control. And uh, if you contribute data to these new internet platforms, you're going to get ownership and you're going to have equity in these things. But here's the thing. If they're investing in these platforms, how true is the story of liberation that they're telling people about? I mean, if they successfully invested in Web2 and they became like you know, the barons uh, of the of the web two, you know, fiefdoms, um, and now they're telling you like, oh yeah, we're gonna liberate you from those guys that who happen to be us, and you know, uh, we're gonna you know free you in this world where we're gonna through tokens somehow like give you ownership over the new internet platforms. Like, a how is that a true story if that's something that VCs that are literally investing in this stuff are telling you? And b how do you determine allocative outcomes? You know. Uh, how do you uh, plan for an outcome where uh, each person owns like a specific fair share uh, of uh, some capital? Basically, you can't plan for that. The market determines that, right? So I, that's why I find that there's a really weird like Marxist overtone with some of the Web3 stuff. So in my mind, I would advocate for a more pared down vision of Web3, which doesn't suggest 
or to, you know, to people that they're going to have literal ownership of uh, whatever internet platform comes next, right? I would just say that they would be more empowered relative to those platforms. But I wouldn't proclaim that you're going to own X percentage of the next Facebook because you can't determine that. That's only something that the market can do. Wow, Nick, not only are you a Bitcoin moderate, but you're also a Web3 moderate. You might also be kicked out of this, this group. <laughs> I know. Are there Web3 maximalists? Because if so, I'm, I'm, I'm not screwed. sure because <laughs> usually you have to have a, a, an actual ideology. And, and as you pointed out, I think people don't really know what Web3 really is. I do personally, when I think of the concept, it's much more close to what you've described for like universal login and DID. Mm. Mm. Um, we called it the accountless internet, right? Like it's it truly is if I open up my... I'm not even going to name it for security reasons, whichever password manager I may or may not use, the seriously insane number of credentials that I have stored there that something's got to give on that. Um, what about like, you know, you once I think said, uh, you were talking about, so you wrote a great piece once about social media. And I think, can't remember, I'm going to paraphrase you, but you said something like we're all serfs on Jack Dorsey's like feudal land, right? Because um, you can be rugged, um, censored, your account broken. This happens to... YouTubers all the time that make their whole livelihoods um, out of their YouTube content. And then for one reason or another, they get banned from the platform um, and lose everything. And, you know, do you think we're going to get like some kind of social decentralized social media or really, I should say, I guess personally, I don't care too much if it's actually decentralized. It's what you said about these uh, web 3.0 concept that it's, that it's actually just more resilient, robust, like, you know, just better for users but do you think that's coming that's my bull case for quote-unquote web 3 um, it's not that we would take every person on earth and give them proportional ownership of like the next internet platform via tokens that i don't think is actually possible but i do think you can define a new model for like communication and uh, commerce on the internet uh, quote-unquote social media where there's more stable property rights associated yeah. with your like little plot of land, right? So your Twitter username or your Facebook, I haven't used Facebook in 10 years. I don't even know what it looks like. My account's basically um, locked. I don't think you can even post on my wall or whatever. Yeah, your wall. Remember that? You didn't get walls? my birthday post? <laughs> I actually, I, they still have pokes? <laughs> back in the day, I was an early Facebook user. We had it in 2004. Yeah. Um, so I've been off it, but you know, just think of your little um, handle on any like, you know, web two social media platform as like, a little homestead, right? Which you've carved out of the wilderness, basically. And you have put labor and uh, time and effort into improving that uh, plot of land, basically. Now, what I'm advocating is you should be able to own that land. Mm -hmm. You should be able to graduate from a serf to um, a farmer that, you know, so you should be able to practice digital enclosure, right? So, you know, in the medieval ages, they had this common land and then they closed it off and that was enclosure. And that created property rights. And so people now cared about the land that they worked on, right? It was very controversial. People didn't like it, right? It's like, what do you mean you own this? No, the people own it. So it's the same reason that, that Web3 is controversial, right? It's digital enclosure. It's the same thing. But that's what I think we should be progressing towards. Because right now the model is you're completely... Um, completely disempowered, right? Completely at the whim of the platform. Yeah. And so, like, how do we actually get there? Well, it's going to be complicated. Like, maybe the social graph is on chain and the data is not on chain, right? Because, I mean, how are you going to be able to put petabytes or yottabytes or whatever <laughs> right. on blockchains? Probably not. Um, 
is it going to move to more of a thin interface model where the social media platforms are really just interfaces for the same sort of underlying data? And then you're going to have kind of like, like different email on. clients, basically. Yeah, yeah. So you'll have maybe different moderation rules. Uh, in theory, everything can be, um, you know, exposed to the user, but then maybe there'll be different uh, you know, models where this one is the more stricter moderation, this one is the looser one, and you can take your pick and you can have free exit and free entry. And right? you, you mentioned Mastodon. This is one where that is sort of the case, right? You have It's a federated social media platform where we can run our own Mastodon instance, us four, um, and choose to connect to no one. And so it's just a place where we post to each other. But we could say, you know, we also really love this other Mastodon that talks about, you know, cats or something all the time. Let's connect to them, and now our users exposed to to each right, and then you could imagine how big graphs build out of these various nodes. And yeah, um, so I mean, look, it's one possibility I, of how I, it goes. It, that exists today, by the way. Mastodon, yeah, Mastodon, cool. and and there's no like uh, blockchainy stuff there, but I think the persistent identities and the persistent digital property you get from blockchains, uh, those are pretty key. And so I am I envision you like having a genuine hard form of ownership over your plot of land. Uh, maybe that part, that credential is on chain and then you can flip between these networks um, and uh, and, you know, maybe if they're sort of uh, serving you adequately in terms of like the terms of service or the legal system, you know, then that is one that you choose to reside on, but you're not forced to. So right. you have your free exit. Um, and so, you know, that model seems a lot, lot better than what we have right now with social media, where you're just completely unilaterally owned by whoever the dictator of that platform is. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's, I like the sound of that future. I think in, in the world, I mean, we, so let's try, I want to mention like the metaverse, right? Cause it's this obviously a big buzzwordy concept now. And I view this as the metaverse like this today, we have at least a version of the metaverse, your social graph, your digital existence, your zoom calls, your, you know, paying with NFC chips, your all there's, there's a lot right now. I don't think it has to be like the movie Ready Player One where you're in a haptic suit and you walk on like a three-dimensional treadmill and you wear a VR goggles. I think we already have a metaverse and um, that ownership is really lacking. And to me, I right. think this is the best example of what Web3 should be as a concept. Mm -hmm. I think you've made yeah. that point very Web3 well. Web3 is about property rights. It's not about virtual reality. Or ownership. Okay. Yeah, it's about genuine, it's about taking digital concepts and reinstituting analog property rights. And that extends to a lot of different things. And that should be part of a broader revolution such that we can own software again. You yeah. know, we can own hardware, right? God, that's been one of the most disappointing. And I know probably I'm not an expert in, in SaaS like technology revenue models, but the fact that I can't even like buy software anymore, I have to lease it all. You can't, you can't even own a toaster anymore. You kind of have to rent your toaster too it's now, you know, it's like, and cars too. Like, books. You're not gonna, I've got you're all these like, Kindle books. They can yeah, just rug me at any you time. Own. You're like your Tesla. Like, no, you got to like buy the update. Yo, I saw that Tesla. Was it Tesla? They, uh, or no, they there was another car that was software coming. Software patch upgrade? They, there's literally, you can unlock additional features for a monthly fee, but it's in the car already. It's already theoretically. <laughs> yeah. There, yeah. But and there was I, another car company. I can't forget, but it was a similar, like, oh, like if you wanted like the massage chair, like you pay them monthly. But like it's in the car already. The ring I'm wearing right now, the yeah. aura ring I'm wearing, I subscribe to this hardware. I subscribe to the hardware. So like this is like a terrible world where we've sassified everything and uh, we don't actually own anything anymore. So I'm just advocating a back to the land, regain our ownership. Yeah. As Susie would say, a revanchist movement. Okay. 
We're taking ownership back. That includes hardware, software, and our digital property rights. It's a bullish vision. I like it. And what's the platform that we think that this new digital land will be anchored. built on? Yeah, and built anchored on, anchored on. too. Because obviously one of the biggest things is if we are envisioning a new internet, a new way of doing digital identity, we need to have like a scalable blockchain. <laughs> And this seems to be a, a continuing source of contention among all the layer one blockchains out there. Um, I mean, I know I have a bias towards Ethereum, but there is quite a lot of other innovative like ways in which uh, transaction fees and, and blockchain scalability can be solved. Do we, and there's many different competing theories. There's now modularism versus mm. monolithic chains versus blockchain and blockchains. There's Layered many, scaling. yes, yeah. there's many different different theses theses around how around how this web3 could be built is there a platform that you have in mind nick that's like you know much yeah i i mean i would advocate for like uh data parsimony you know so putting as little on chain as you can get away with right um so i i don't you know see a world where like if we rebuild uh twitter or whatever that we literally put everything on chain that seems crazy um but yeah put me in the camp of uh of layered scaling, I think modularity is just another way of saying layered scaling. I think I so too. Actually, by the like way, we were talking about saying this. that. I know it's like a fun rebrand or whatever, but it, yeah. that sounds a lot like just like layers and rollups and things. Yeah, like they're that. just. I guess they're saying it's not just put all rebuild an entire layer that has availability and computation and transferability and whatever. It's okay. Well, what if we have a layer that's only available data availability? What if we have one that's only computation, right? Um, I will say from the coin metrics experience, and I really encourage everybody to start a company where you run the nodes of like a hundred blockchains. <laughs> I really do think that's a useful experience for yeah. anyone. Um, there's real thermodynamic limits that you start to hit when you have these big, you know, full nodes that are processing zillions of transactions a second. And basically we've hit those limits already for a few blockchains, to be clear. Um, and, you know, things start to really degrade once you once you reach those limits of computation per per second. Um, and basically you end up in a in a permissioned model where the foundation is the only one running the node. You know, like there's some weird anecdotes I could tell you, like we tried to sync a ripple full node one time and they're like, actually, you know, it's actually faster for us to just mail you a hard drive. <laughs> With the blockchain already on it? Yep. Yeah. So Ripple, you know, runs on the sneaker net, basically. The sneaker net, yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff like that where a lot of, nobody really sees this stuff, but like, you know, your Binance Smart Chains, even your Trons, actually, um, Solana, like stuff like that. Uh, you're reaching the limits here. And uh, you're only getting linear gains in terms of scalability from pushing it further. So clearly that's not going to be the model. I'm not saying those blockchains are doomed, but I think some of them you actually will have data loss yeah. as a consequence. I mean, this has been, uh, this is an OG Bitcoin concept, right? Was, yeah, I liked what you said, data parsimony. Um, Bitcoiners have always tried to keep block space as minimal as possible, mm -hmm. usage of block space. In fact, there were some times I remember where people were actually advocating like around Satoshi dice. They were like mad, like get this thing they off were. here. Right? They were. Get this yeah. thing off here. It's not a, it's a, the, the social layer was saying this is an inappropriate use. Now, and and uh, yeah. BitMEX Research had a great piece recently looking at the history of um, the Opraturn Wars in Bitcoin. And one of the debates there was counterparty. The first, some of the first tokens issued on Bitcoin their usage of Opraturn was seen as abusive. Right. So Bitcoin has had this built into its cultural fabric 
the whole time. Right. Not only um, is it not optimized intentionally, I think this is a feature, not a flaw, to do things like easy data uh, composability, availability, you know, a virtual machine, right? That's, I always point out, that is a choice that Bitcoin the Bitcoin community has made. It's not an inherent flaw of Bitcoin. Right. That was, that was the design philosophy. Right. But I think that, and that persists, um, which is so interesting because I, I you know, having talked with and, and worked with people in the blockchain space um, for years, this is a very, very common view until pretty recently, I think, with, you know, the advent of Solana and, you know, the, the just debates about composability and, um, I think almost everyone was on the layered scaling approach that they thought that was the most. I, with the, with, there was a period in 2015 to, yeah. let's say, 2019, where uh, there's a big faction where, like, Ethereum people were united with big block people. Right? That's true. You remember? I do and remember. Then, and then, you know, and I see Ethereum as downstream in Bitcoin culture in many ways. Then the Ethereum people were like, no, we're going to go to a roll-up model, which is that's much a, that's more a good sensible. Point. That's a good worse. point. But there was a period of time where it was like, maybe we can just arbitrarily. You're right. I actually data. recall um, right Vitalik being praiseworthy of Bitcoin yeah, Cash. For, and, well, for a time. Yeah, for a yeah, time. For a yeah. time. I do view it, I think, um, Christine mentioned them well. I do think of it as like a layered scaling approach, um, which includes, I think we agreed, modularity with sort of Bitcoin on the far ossified side of it and ETH as sort of the more accommodative side when it comes to the L1 and then this full monolithic approach, which I think Solana is sort of the iconic one here now. And then maybe, as Christine mentioned, blockchains of blockchains, something like Cosmos, that ecosystem. And and I don't see, is does anyone here, is there some like core primitive approach that I'm forgetting other than those sort of three approaches we have now? I think that summarizes some. The thing that, um, you know, I think hasn't been answered yet is in a roll-up world or a world with sharding, you know, is it possible to have like true, uh, composable atomic, you sort of like DeFi transactions like shards that. and yeah. And that was always my objection was that you're going to run into that inefficiency where you're basically going back down to the settlement layer and then you're going back up. Yeah. You know, it's the like shard. the, um, the MBTA, the T in Boston, right? They don't have any cross town loops or trains to go everywhere. You have to go into downtown and then mm. go back out. It's one of my big complaints. Great analogy. Yeah. Right? That's like, a great analogy. You, come in, you know, you were, uh, we, you were downtown. I was in Cambridge. Anytime I wanted yeah, to go, you couldn't go around. If I wanted to go from Cambridge out to like Boston college or somewhere like Chestnut Hill or, or even up to the beach and Revere, you have to go into the center of Boston first and then come back out. Was, and sometimes the, uh, they didn't even interoperate. Like you had the green line, which was like weird buses going through <laughs> right. tunnels. It was like the tunnels were built for trains, but then for some reason they put buses in them. <laughs> yeah. The silver line in Boston is like that too. So strange. Um, I just thought of that. I wonder if that I'm going to play this analogy yeah, that, out. There might be, you might see an op-ed from me in a few weeks. Yeah, that interoperability is, is like post. the MBTA. I wonder if that makes the roll-up arena like a winner takes all, you know, like one very highly performant ZK EVM winning out among all of them for the efficiency gains and everyone just kind of like converging on that. Yeah. Because there is, there is that atomicity within one implementation, but there might not be that composability between different implementations. Or if we see like the the cost of deploying on one chain, one EVM compatible chain is so low that you could just deploy it on several different EVM compatible chains. I think you get stickiness within ecosystems though, because people learn specific programming languages and they don't necessarily want to retrain themselves you learn best practices within like the specific like um you know smart contract language and uh there's like momentum in that and then you also get like financial 
uh, siloization that develops, you know, because you have like your ecosystem funds and your venture firms that like back things. So I think that's the thing that throws the wrench in the works here is you do have a degree of momentum within ecosystems, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of guarantees that like, in my view, we're always yeah. going to have a bunch of these. Blockchains like almost never die, no. right? Even like no. super old, annoying ones like that really nobody uses like couple people still run the node and then it just exists, right? That long tail just persists. Yeah. Um, and that extends obviously way up from just the really old random ones with two nodes. But like, yeah, this is um the identity coins, the communities around these things are re- really powerful. I hope it doesn't result ultimately in us living with like, if there is a Web3 future, you know, 10 different standards that we all have to, we all no, have to deal with. That would be a mess. Yeah. Yeah. You, you have to think the market, markets tend to converge on an idea. The word protocol by definition means standards, right? Like, um, so I hope that that's where we get. I think, I do think there's a, a world where we have definitely more than one blockchain, layer one blockchain. Um, I don't see a world where Bitcoin goes away um, for no. what it does, but I also see a lot of these things we're talking about really not being um, easy to build on Bitcoin or perhaps not even certainly in the ethos of what the Bitcoin culture wants on its blockchain in terms of what Bitcoiners are um, open to using block space for and well, being this, accommodative. This for. is why I keep talking about decoupling the asset and the network for Bitcoin, right? Because they're different things. There's a Bitcoin asset, which has certain monetary properties, which I would say are very desirable and so on. And then there's the network, which is kind of like increasingly underutilized, right? Like if you just look at the fees and like the utilization, um, you know, it's just a fact that most of the developer enthusiasm for building things on blockchain networks is not just not happening on Bitcoin, right? And that's fine. The question is, like, where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. Now, can you take the Bitcoin asset and transact it in other venues, right? I would say probably yes. And this is what a lot of other blockchains are trying to do. They're actually trying to be really accommodative and embrace Bitcoin, right? So, you know, Terra kind of tried to do that. That was very ill-fated. This is an explicit strategy of the Avalanche crew, right. for what it's worth. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of these blockchains will eventually realize that they probably want the capital base that uh, exists on Bitcoin being the number one. You have wrapped Bitcoin. There was, um, I, I think there's Ren BTC. There was TBTC. There's a bunch. I think um, ThorChain also embraces a concept yeah. like this. Yeah. I think the real issue today is we just don't have a good trust minimized way no. to bring Bitcoin onto right. other stuff, right? I mean, and that might require a change to the Bitcoin protocol level, by the way, right? So, you know, that would be an interesting challenge I would kind of pose to the Bitcoiners is can you make your asset more amenable to being transacted elsewhere? That is, uh, a, I don't know. I think most are going to say that's a bridge too far, well, Bitcoiners. A bridge too far, that's good. <laughs> they also may not like it because it means there's probably fewer fees of the Bitcoin. Well, that was always an level. interesting question, right, for all types of sort of abstractions, uh, whether it's Bitcoin or other assets, is like, you know, do, what happens, even in Lightning, even if you take Lightning, let's say 100% or a vast majority of use cases of Bitcoin are actually Bitcoin being escrowed and inert, remaining inert on chain, and then the economic activity or transactional activity happening elsewhere, who pays for those fees? That was, I remember asking Elizabeth Stark, she came to Fidelity, I think, some years ago and she asked did. her this question, does Lightning cannibalize Bitcoin's fees? And she said no, because it opens up new transactional space, new economic activity, so that's accretive to fees generally, which I find you know persuasive. But look, the fees question, maybe that'll have to be figured out, but I do think... Um, you know, if 10 years from now, many, many times more activity 
which is sort of Bitcoin denominated, Bitcoin flavored, will be happening outside of Bitcoin than on the Bitcoin network itself. Very interesting. Um, you know, I, I, I don't have a strong view on this yet. I haven't figured this out, but it's a question I love uh, talking to people about. And I think that's a really compelling view. Um, I wonder if, you know, I think a lot of people want, they look at what Bitcoin has from a security and a decentralization and to your point about nodes, the ease at running and operating the actual network, which is software. Bitcoin is software. It is other things too, but it is software um, as extremely desirable to your point, your point about the monetary qualities, right? It's, it's can't be arbitrarily debased. Um, it's very transparent, incredibly neutral monetary issuance network. Um, and, and I just say, well, gosh, there might be other things I want. I would prefer them to be, somehow on Bitcoin. And we just don't have a way to do that really today for most of those things. And, and look, I mean, I, I, maybe that's, a, I think that's okay for Bitcoin personally. I, can, I think Bitcoin can be successful without being the platform that all these things are built on. You look at something like Ethereum, it's, it's the community is a much more of like a spaghetti on the wall approach. Like let's try to build this thing that's so generally composable that it can perhaps do everything, right? And I feel like that, you're always gonna be kind of let down by that. Right. So it's kind of this double edged sword where I'm like, on the one hand, I have things I want to do on a open decentralized network. And the one that I trust the most, I hate to use that word in the context of trust, minimized, trustless systems like like Bitcoin, but is Bitcoin. And but maybe there's something else I want and I can't do it on Bitcoin. So I'm basically forced into this other paradigm. And, I, you know, I think Ethereum is quite good at this. Um, it's not like. You know, you know, I think on the scale from secure and decentralized to somehow totally insecure and centralized, Ethereum is probably the next one right after Bitcoin for the most part, at least of the big ones. So it's maybe the trade-offs are fine, but I think like that's that's where I wonder, um, does it is it always like that? Does it stay like that, or do, does do people embrace side chains or, or roll-ups or something else or payment channels like Lightning? Um, yeah, I think does we, that get there? I don't know. And you, you, for example, like you mentioned Elizabeth Stark, like the whole project they're doing with Tarot, which is to, I think, attempt to use TapTweak to allow, um, which is a thing you can do with the Taproot, um, the Taproot upgrade on Bitcoin to allow for asset tokenization on Lightning. Is that, well, it's, does, it's does funny that get us there? I, I don't know. I love to see it come full circle, right? Where you had, uh, you know, MasterCoin, uh, I guess, which became Omni, Counterparty, uh, colored coins, right? So the, the primitive versions of asset issuance they on all Bitcoin, started on Bitcoin. Yeah. Then they went to basically Ethereum or other chains. And then now there's kind of like a more sophisticated way to do it on Lightning, which is more data efficient, right? And, you, you know, uh, probably be overall like it, it would be, um, yeah, it'd be super efficient from a data perspective to have stable coins back on Bitcoin. Uh, we'll see what happens. There's a lot of other variables there that matter. Yeah. Right? And it's hard to develop. I, I think you made this point before. It is even on Lightning. It's not a, this is where Solana has, has seen so much success is it's just really easy to code, right? It's in Rust. Yeah. There's like, so there's, there's like a bajillion Rust developers. There's variables people overlook. when right. they. So the thing that sort of is the most uh, pure and uh, satisfying from like an engineering perspective isn't always the thing that happens, right? right. It's like there's a lot of other uh, things that go into it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think the ship has sailed in terms of like having the side chain vision be true and, uh, having everything, you know, being built on Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin, you know, maybe could have tried to go that way, but it didn't. And, uh, that's fine. Um, that was like what Pete Rizzo was talking about in his interesting article about monetary maximalist platform maximalist and network maximalist. And, and the monetary maximalists are really in the driver's seat for Bitcoin today. Yeah. 
the platform maximalists were more what I was describing. I of, Gosh, that. I would like yeah. to have stuff on Bitcoin. And the old school response used to be, well, any good idea that an altcoin comes up with will eventually be, incorporated be built on Bitcoin. Bitcoin, but which is manifestly not true. Right. It right. hasn't happened. No. And th- that and, is and an the Bitcoin idea, culture no. today doesn't want it to happen. No, no, no. You're right. So we've moved on from saying innovation elsewhere will be done here. Now it's we actually don't want that on Bitcoin, which is fine. But I do remember a time when the idea was any altcoin innovation will eventually collapse right. back to Bitcoin. Right. This has been an awesome discussion. Um, I think we're, we're running up on time here. So um, I don't know. One last question for you, Nick. Uh, what, what's exciting you? What's up next in your mind for in, in your world? Um, anything that uh, you want to highlight that we didn't talk about that you're excited about? Um, you're in New York now. You're heading back to Miami. You're a Miami guy now, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I So I don't know. I think the most um, interesting thing that's going to happen in the next couple of years is all kind of macro related. And I do think it is crypto dollarization is the number one thing to look out for. So we're going to be investing behind that thesis for sure, as we have been. You were early on this too. You had a great paper called uh, Crypto Dollars. Crypto Dollars. So yeah, I tried to rebrand stable coins. Didn't work. <laughs> that's okay. I'll yeah. take my licks there. Uh, we're still investing in Bitcoin stuff to any Bitcoiners listening that are uh, concerned. Uh, fear not. I'm still here. Yep. I'm just not a Bitcoin maximalist, nor have I ever been. Uh, taking the opportunity to clear the air on that one. It's been an interesting process. Great podcast uh, you did with Joe uh, Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway on their Odd Lots podcast a, a week or two ago that I listened to solely about that topic, yeah. about Nick and Bitcoin maximalism. So I recommend folks check that out if they want to go down funny. that rabbit hole further. We'd been slated to do an Odd Lots podcast for literally years. And then they finally got me on when it was like the th- one thing I didn't want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> did you kind of foresee this coming, though? Like, given that a lot of your following has been built up by Bitcoiners, where you kind of always like anticipating the other shoe to drop and for people to finally realize you know i am not actually a bitcoin maximalist investor in the blockchain ecosystem yeah i i mean i'd never uh considered myself a bitcoin maximalist never ever but i guess people just assumed uh but yeah i i did uh i knew that they would happen and i knew that to be true to yourself you have to be willing to fire your fans uh periodically right you have to be willing to do it over and over and uh, I didn't realize people would take it quite so badly. Uh, but yeah, I was planning on um, at some point trying to reconcile the like content creator Nick with like Nick who has a real job and has to invest in stuff. Uh, and those were different people. And it's just that the reconciliation was very painful for some of uh, for some of the Bitcoin community. Well, thank you again, Nick, our friend. Um, really appreciate this. A wide-ranging and interesting discussion. I know I'm going to come back to you, so um, really appreciate it. Great to see you in person here in New York, by the way, which I said to you I consider the center of the universe, for better or worse. Um, and uh, and we're down here in Soho. Uh, it's really fun doing this podcast in person. we got to try to do this more often. Um, it's hard with guests. You know, not everyone's here. Um, but great to see you, man. Thank you. And um This was Galaxy Brains. Uh, Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, a weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. If you enjoyed this show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about Galaxy Digital Research and what we work on, check us out on Twitter at GLXYResearch and read our reports at galaxydigital.io slash research. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you next time.